morning, everyone. It is Remembrance Sunday, and so I thought I'd start by reading out a poem which uh, was written during the First World War, and it's about the fields uh, where the uh, British soldiers were buried um, in, on which the poppies grow, which is why we wear poppies on Remembrance Day now, so this is kind of the, the root of it. In Flanders fields, the poppies grow between the crosses, row on row, that mark our place. And in the sky, the larks, still bravely singing, fly, scarce heard, amid the guns below. We are the dead. Short days ago we lived, felt dawn, saw sunset glow, loved and were loved, and now we lie in Flanders fields. Remembrance Sunday's a bit of an odd moment for Christians because we know what we ought to do. We ought to remember those who have gone before. We remember those who are currently serving. We remember those who have served and have come back. Uh, for me, I think about members of my family who have served. My grandfather was in the RAF, in RAF Uxbridge. Um, my other grandfather's uncle is this man, Charles Frederick Birch. Um, he died in Flanders fields. So this is his gravestone. It doesn't look like this anymore. Um, but that's um, just outside Ypres. And this is his name on a memorial uh, in Hartlepool, where he was from. He died on the 4th of October, 1917. He was a gunner in the Royal Garrison Artillery. And he was 21 years old. And his, as a Christian, there's something there feels wrong. And so I know I should think of him, and it's right to think of him and remember him and remember others like him. But if I'm honest... I don't really know what I ought to think as a Christian because he was a soldier in a war. He died in 1917. He was 21. He was young, but he wasn't 18. So he'd probably been fighting there a couple of years. I don't know how many people he killed. So I don't know, as a Christian, should I publicly honor him as a soldier fighting on behalf of this nation, doing an honorable thing? Or maybe I ought to silently respect him doing something that I know that I don't know if I could do. Or actually, should I pity him having to do something which is just a result of sin in this world? I shouldn't want him to have done it. Or actually, should I judge him for doing, for killing people in the name of a war. If you listen to the loudest voices in the world at the moment about what Christians should think about war, then you tend to hear one of two extreme views. And ironically, the views are, come from the loudest voices, but they're not Christians. Richard Dawkins is an atheist who I'm sure that many of us are familiar with. Uh, he argues strongly 
that religion is the primary cause of conflict in the world, based on no evidence whatsoever. In The God Delusion, he says, religion causes wars by generating certainty. I think he's onto something. His theory is that if you believe in something so strongly that you believe that it is absolutely true, but it's based on no evidence, then all that's going to happen is you're going to end up arguing with people and that's going to lead to conflict. I think he's probably right. I do think it's ironic that it comes from him, who's probably one of the most aggressive, arrogant people arguing for something for which he has no evidence, and so he causes conflict. But that doesn't undermine the actual facts in the argument. But whether religion ought to therefore support war and be aggressive, I think that's completely flawed and incorrect. Christianity is not a religion of war, it's a religion of peace. I'm sure that many of you saw an interview recently with David Mitchell, the comedian. Um, we went around Facebook a little bit ago. And he was actually talking about the fact he's an agnostic, he's not an atheist. I don't know whether there's any difference there really. But he said, people kill people in the name of politics, in the name of religion, in the name of freedom. To suggest that taking away one of those excuses is going to stop the killing is absolutely absurd. Yeah. And as a Christian... I know, therefore, that war is not something that I should be celebrating on Remembrance Day. And many Christians, well, actually, you hear atheists saying that many Christians should, but we imagine that many Christians go from the Bible, Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. In the King James Version, it says, Thou shalt not kill, and in wars you kill, and therefore war is bad all the time. And so the Christian perspective should be pacifism. Another verse, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 39, Jesus says, Do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Don't resist someone who is evil. Someone's doing something bad, let them do it. Actually, allow them to go one step further. I don't think that pacifism is a truly Christian attitude either. Uh, that verse in Exodus, in the King James Version, says thou shalt not kill. The original word in Hebrew that's translated as kill uh, actually is better translated murder or manslaughter and a combination of those two. It's not simply the act of killing outright. King James Version isn't a bad translation. But we've got the advantage of 400 years since it was translated, so we've got far more texts and far more knowledge since then. So thou shalt not murder is probably a little bit better. And Jesus' reference there about do not resist the one who is evil is talking explicitly about taking revenge on somebody who's done something. So that's not really talking about war. Mark Driscoll was preaching recently about murder, and he said, one of the defining attributes of God's coming kingdom is shalom, perfect peace, untainted by sin, violence, or bloodshed of any sort. Such a kingdom is only possible if an all-powerful, benevolent authority vanquishes his enemies. In other words, the Prince of Peace is not a pacifist. God is the author of life and sovereign over death. So the Christian attitude, therefore, must be somewhere in the middle. And thankfully, we've got 2,000 years of Christian theologians developing what's known as a just war theory. I wonder if I could just read you a little bit from the beginning of Romans 13. Which says, would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. 
But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So that's out the Bible, okay? That's not just somebody being quoted. What it's talking about is our attitude to authority, that if we do good, if we obey the law, then we shouldn't have anything to fear from the government, those that God has put in place in leadership over us. Um, Augustine was um, probably the, the first Christian theologian outside of those who had direct contact with Jesus and the Twelve, so it's quite significant in Christian history. He wrote a very long book. It was quite interesting. I haven't read it all, um, but it's probably worth it, called City of God. And, and he took this idea that saying, the Bible says, you know, the, the authorities do not bear the sword in vain. That's obviously a picture of uh, capital punishment. But actually, if you break the law, then death is the uh, it's a deterrent, but it's also the consequence. And it's actually the right thing. That's what the Bible says. So Augustine said, They who have waged war in obedience to the divine command or in conformity with his laws have represented in their persons the public justice or the wisdom of government and in this capacity have put to death wicked, de- wicked men. Such persons have by no means violated the commandment, thou shalt not kill. So declaring war, if you are a proper authority that has been put in place by God, if it's for the right reason, that's the, it's the right thing to do. Thomas Aquinas, a few hundred years later, he actually wrote a paper which is much smaller, and I have read, called The Just War. And he develops this into three criteria that we can measure. The first is a proper authority. So there should be an established government, not vigilantes. Some recognized government, whether that is that we recognize that there's a royal family who are in control or we recognize that these people are in control because we voted them in an established government. The second is that there should be just cause for war. Thomas Aquinas words it like this, those attacked must have by a fault deserved to be attacked. So someone must have done something wrong to deserve that war to be declared against them. So proper authority, just cause, and finally, right intention. In other words, war must not be declared because this country has something that I want and so I will attack it. Peace must be the ultimate motive. So if we're declaring war in order to uh, vanquish an evil power that is causing suffering and distress in order for the cause of peace, and that is right. Now you might be thinking this is a very interesting academic discussion that we could have, but uh, it's not very practical really. Uh, we're here relatively comfortable on a Sunday morning. We're in a safe borough in a relatively safe city um, what on earth does understanding just war theory do for us? Um, Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12 recognizes that this is our experience. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. As Christians, we don't live in a, uh, um, in a religion which forces us to engage in physical conflict. But this continues. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So we don't engage in physical conflict, most of us. Most of us have never experienced war. By the grace of God, we never will. But we do 
experience spiritual conflict every single day, whether you know it or not, whether you like it or not. It's part of the Christian life. I mean, we know this just by living in a fallen world. The environment is constantly just falling apart around us. We experience it in our relationships. Those who we are in closest relationship with, who we live the most, we have the most conflict with. It's, it's counterintuitive, isn't it? Why, why is that the case? We see it in ourselves, the battle that we live in our own heart. We want to do one thing, but we do something else. And we, we can't justify why. It doesn't, it doesn't go together. But it happens, doesn't it? So we're engaged in this conflict, and I think that as Christians we do two things wrong. We avoid conflict when we ought to be engaging, and we get involved in conflict when we shouldn't do or in a way that we shouldn't do. Now, we could look at all kinds of different aspects of this particular conflict, and often people will talk about the supernatural elements of spiritual warfare, or they'll talk about the personal struggle that we go through. This morning, I want to talk about relationships and the way that this spiritual war impacts the way that we relate to one another. So, who here is a conflict avoider? A lot of people are like it. There are some people who are like it, but haven't put their hand up because they think, oh, I'm not sure where this is going, I don't want to get involved in this. Sometimes we can, and I think that we all do it, even if we, you know, we freely acknowledge, I like to avoid conflict. If something goes wrong, I'm not going to engage in this because I'm going to just go and do something else. So it will go away, it'll blow over, I'll just absorb it and whatever. Because we think peace is maybe something that we ought to be striving for in all situations. I'm a Christian anyway, so I ought to let you know. If something goes wrong at work, that's okay, I'll let it go. Um, I don't think that this works <laughs> in all situations. It doesn't work. I have a friend of mine at work, sits um, just a couple of desks down from me. And the other day I noticed that she was doing some work which I know that she didn't like. She used to be in a team that did it, and she intentionally moved to the team so that she didn't have to do this work anymore. And her previous boss had said, you do this for me, and she was doing it. And so I said, why, why are you doing that? I didn't think you liked it. And she said, well, I'll just do what I'm told. Right. She didn't like engaging in conflict. This guy's more senior than her, obviously. She doesn't want to get him angry. But ultimately, she's going to end up doing a job she doesn't enjoy. She's probably not going to do it very well because she's now in a different team. She's better at doing other things. She's going to end up delivering a piece of work so the guy isn't going to be happy either. It's not going to help her career. It's not, it's not going to help anyone. This is just bad news. I think that avoiding conflict always leads to dissatisfaction and underachievement. So think about this in a couple of other examples. In evangelism, you're talking to a non-Christian, and then they say something like, oh, I mean, I don't think the Bible's true. They say, well, I don't really want to get involved in conflict. And say, oh, well, we're all entitled to our opinion, aren't I? Did you watch X Factor this week? <laughs> and it's, oh. Sorry. I don't know if it was any good or not. Um, in evangelism, what's going to end up happening in that situation? Well, ultimately, we're going to be dissatisfied because every single time in church that it is mentioned, have you spoken to your friends? Have you handed out a leaflet? Somebody did it to their babysitter this week. Oh, for goodness sake, I can't even talk to somebody that you know, I saw at work and they asked me, should I go to carol service this year? At least a dissatisfaction and underachievement. 
you know, if we're not being actively evangelized, it might, engage, it might mean in getting engaged in conflict with people who don't know Jesus. But if we don't engage in that conflict, then we're never going to see any fruit. So we should engage in conflict. Um, and in marriage. I was talking to a friend of mine recently about marriage, and they said, well, marriage is conflict, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, it exists. I wouldn't quite go that far, but it just happened, doesn't it? I came home from work the other day. I've had a hard, long day at work, very busy in and out of meetings. I've just come back off a sweaty tube. It's raining, so I'm covered in sweat and rain. I walk in through the door, and Anna says, oh, I think that we should go to my family for Christmas this year. Oh, just drop that on me. Now, in that situation, I kind of had a you know, decision to make. If I had completely avoided conflict and just said, I, I, I just think I need to pop out and pick up something from the shop, and then I would be going around the shop throwing things in the basket, just getting bitter inside. The guy, I don't want to, not going to, uh, I'm not going to you know, have conflict over this. I'm not going to engage. I'm just going to hope that it'll blow over. Maybe we'll just go to her family, and then we'll just be all right. And, you know, it's going to lead to dissatisfaction for me, and it's going to lead to underachievement for us as a couple. Because ultimately, beware the root of bitterness. That's what the Bible says, isn't it? It'll just grow and grow and grow. We'll end up losing, become distant emotionally. We'll become less intimate emotionally, physically. It'll lead to frustration. It's not good simply to avoid conflict in every situation. And Charles Spurgeon, who is a big preacher in London, physically big, he was quite a large man, as well as being influential, he said, there can be no peace between you and Christ while there is peace between you and sin. Now be careful you don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that going to Anna's family for Christmas would be sin. But I think where there are situations in which we ought to be involving ourselves in conflict for the sake of Christ, and we don't, then... We might not realize it. What we're effectively doing is placing ourselves in conflict with him. It's in James. I can't remember the exact reference that it says. Um, for the one who knows what is good but doesn't do it, for him it is sin. So I hope that I can convince you that it is right for us to involve ourselves in conflict because the war that we're fighting for him is not simply a just war, it is the just war. And we can see that simply by looking at God himself. This war has been declared by a proper authority, the king of kings, the creator and sustainer of all things, the beginning and the end. There is no one like him. No one has his authority. He is the proper authority. It's for a just cause. This war began because Satan tempted Eve directly disobey God. When you have got a being who is ultimately good, objectively good, defines what good is, and you've got a force which is then saying, go against that, well, that is objectively bad. And therefore, warring against that is a just cause. And it's the right intention. We're fighting for him, the Prince of Peace. Now, the word peace in English can mean many different things. In Hebrew, that word is shalom, I already mentioned it. And that shalom means a holistic sense of completeness, 
of complete peace in every situation. It's not simply there's no conflict and therefore we're at peace. It's that there is a sense of full satisfaction in every area. This shalom is who God is and it's where we are targeted towards. So this war is the just war for us to be involved in. We might think, oh, well, the cost of getting involved is sometimes too high. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a a German preacher during the Second World War. Um, And he said, people who become Christians today are like young soldiers marching to war, the war of Jesus Christ against the gods of this world. It is a war that demands the commitment of one's whole life. Is not God, our Lord, worthy of this struggle? Yes, he is. I think it's too hard. Winston Churchill, Prime Minister during World War II, said, if you are going through hell, keep going. And quite often when we see ourselves in a situation where we think, oh, well, I could get involved in this conflict, then either we're saying, well, I'm just going to stay in hell, or I'm going to back further into it and surround myself with this undealt with conflict. No, just keep going. It's hard. Keep fighting. Don't give up. And like I said, I think that we all do this. I don't think that this is simply a case of, oh, well, some of us avoid conflict and other ones don't. I think we all do it. So maybe I could ask a question. Where are you avoiding conflict right now? Who are you avoiding conflict with? So at work, at home, in the church? A lot of the time, however, avoiding conflict is not the issue. Um, I don't think that it's always necessarily the solution, though. So I don't want you to kind of get out of here and then start fighting everyone and then come back and say, Sam said, like, that's, that's not where I want us to get to. I don't think that this is the solution. Think about my friend at work. Got given this work. The guy comes over to her and says, hey there, I've got a job for you. Will you do it, please? Need it doing this week. And she just went, no, no, I don't want to. I'm going to do some other work. I'll find something else to do. Are well, you just on Facebook at the moment? Yeah. I don't want to do your work, though. What are you going to do about it? Fire me? <laughs> it's, that's going to lead to dissatisfaction and underachievement as well. Engaging in conflict in the wrong way or engaging in the wrong type of conflict will lead to dissatisfaction and underachievement. Now, when Anna said this thing about, oh, should we go to my family for Christmas? I was preparing for this sermon. And so I was thinking, oh, for goodness sake. I'm not allowed to avoid conflict. I don't just want to go shouting at her. So I calmed myself down, I went into the room and just thought, okay, I've got to be humble and wise about this. It doesn't really matter where we go for Christmas. So I was went and asked, what did you mean? So, oh, well, not actual Christmas Day, a few days after Christmas. Oh, I thought we were doing that anyway. It's no big deal. If I'd have avoided conflict, it would have been really bad. If I'd have just gone in shouting, that would have been really bad as well. What happened was we dealt with it in a nice, safe, calm way. So there's the, there is a nice balance to be met with right in the middle. <laughs> and in church as well. We often have differences of opinion when we come to church. Those who are really particularly eagle-eyed among you may have noticed that I'm wearing a suit this morning. Thanks. I didn't have to wear a suit this morning. I could have worn pretty much anything I wanted. I'm sure if I'd have come wearing swimming trunks, I would not have been asked to preach again. 
But something like this about what we wear, if you go to certain churches, then they will always wear casual clothes. If you go to other churches, they will always wear smart clothes. Come to us, I mean, who knows what we think, eh? (laughs) When I came in this morning and you saw me wearing a suit, some of you may have been thinking, that's right, Sam, you are preaching the word of God, and so you should be dressing up smart. Particularly on this day. This is the day you should be dressing up smartly. Others of you might be thinking, oh, Sam got us to preach and suddenly he's wearing a suit, wears jeans and t-shirt every other week, and now, you know, you get to stand up the front for half an hour and then see, oh, you're a special guy. Either of these situations are showing that we've got a particular opinion. Now, neither of those actual opinions might be wrong. It's right to think, oh, we should dress up smart in the house of God, dressing for the king of kings. We dress up smart for the queen, why not for Jesus? But also, we want to be a church that allows people to come as they are. So I don't want to be somebody who's just dressed as a suit and so somebody who comes in off the street and can't afford a suit feels like, oh, this isn't the church for me. No, no, Jesus welcomes everyone. Now, I can't wear every single item of clothing every week, so there's got to be something where we just make a decision and go for something. So it doesn't really matter what decision we make in the end. The question really is what we're going to fight over. I think I'm pretty certain there are people at both ends of that spectrum here this morning who thought those different things about me when they saw me wearing a suit. It probably happened. So if you've got those two people having a conversation about it, what, should we just have an arm wrestle about it or something like that? How should we resolve it? I like to use the language of closed-handed issues and open-handed issues. There are certain things, opinions which I hold, facts which I consider true, which I'm going to hold in an open hand. I'm still holding them. They're my opinions. They're what I think. But if somebody comes over and then takes one out and molds it a little bit, puts it back, maybe exchanges it with one of their own, looks it doesn't like it, and so leaves it alone, that's okay. But there are other issues I'll have in my closed hand. These issues, I'm holding on to these. You can't change it. Regardless of what you say, this is, this is my belief. We should fight about these ones, and we should never fight about these ones. So this is quite straightforward. It's not easy, but it's quite straightforward, right? I think there are only four things we should ever hold in this hand. And I'm going to tell you what those four are. The Bible is God's perfect and authoritative word. That's something in my closed hand. Someone comes and tells me that, no, no, there are issues with the Bible. Some bits you can't really trust anymore. It's been changed over time. I disagree with you. I will argue with you. Who God is. God is eternally one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. If you're a non-Christian, you don't believe that. If you're a Muslim, you don't believe that. So I will, I'm going to fight on this one. This is something that is important. I think you should believe what I believe. Jesus is fully God and fully man who lived, died, and rose again for me. That's something worth fighting for. If you believe something different about that, I want to convince you that my way is right. And we are saved by grace through faith and repentance. If you've got those four, I don't really mind what else you believe. You can believe anything you want, as long as you've got those four. Now, some of you are probably thinking, I can think of something that sounds important that isn't one of those four. 
Let me show you what to do with these. Let me give you a real life example, actually. I don't know if you've been following the news recently. Uh, the news a couple of weeks ago had women in Saudi Arabia all over the headlines. Do you notice this? In Saudi Arabia, it is against the law for women to drive. It's also against the law for them to was it, own a house, they're, and they're not allowed to get a job unless they get explicit written permission from the man who owns her, so her husband or her father. Now, living in the Western world, this seems wrong, doesn't it? This is, it's a human rights issue. How dare you say that somebody is not allowed to drive based on their gender? I mean, that's, it's completely ridiculous. Women are safer drivers than men. <laughs> so this is, there's something wrong about that, but that's not one of my four issues. Now, if you're thinking cleverly, you might think, yeah, but there's a reason I believe that we should treat it like that. The reason I believe that is because it says in the Bible that man and woman both created in the image of God and therefore deserve the same respect. And you could argue in a number of different ways off of that. You know, salvation is freely offered to all, regardless of gender. So actually, the fact that you hold a belief which I haven't mentioned, it's actually rooted in one of these issues in my closed hand. Now work this out in practice. Let's just imagine that we managed to go out from here today and convince the entire world that women should be allowed to drive if they can pass the driving test. Praise God. Women can now allowed to drive. What does that mean in the light of eternity? Nothing. It means absolutely nothing. But if we go to those people and say, you believe that women should not be allowed to drive, why do you believe that? Ask them a question. And they can explain it. And go, okay, maybe you've got good reasons for it, maybe your reasons are not so good if you thought about this. What do you believe about the Bible? I don't believe the Bible is God's word. Now, if we were able to go out and convince everybody that the Bible is actually the perfect and authoritative word of God and that therefore women should be allowed to drive, who cares if women are allowed to drive or not? We just suddenly converted the whole world to Christianity. In the light of eternity, things in our closed hand are going to make an infinite amount of difference, and things in our open hand are going to make no difference. So it's just a couple of things that we should hold in our open hand. Taste in music, politics, whether we should be on social media or not, and what we should post there, where we ought to spend Christmas as a family, <coughs> which Bible translation we ought to use, which church denomination we ought to be involved in, and which ones are good or not, who you should get married to, baby names, what career we should go into. Now, if you went and asked a whole bunch of different Christians across this borough what they believed about a lot of different stuff, we would disagree about far, far more than we would agree on. But the things that we would agree on would be these things in our closed hand. I think we've been working on the food bank recently. Chris has been doing a great job. For those of you who don't know, 50 churches across Ealing Borough are united around feeding the poor in Ealing. Those churches, when the leaders gather together and talk about things, they have incredibly diverse opinions about lots and lots of different things. But we are united around the good news of Jesus Christ. The way that we express ourselves on Sunday mornings, the things that we dress words that we use, the way that we pray, the way we preach, the songs that we sing, whether we sing at all, we're very, very different, but we're all united 
and there is strength in unity. The Bible talks a lot about maintaining the unity of the Spirit, and it talks nothing at all about being the person who can express your opinion the strongest and convince everyone else that what you think is right. So the key to this is about asking questions. If you find somebody disagrees with you, it's possible to ask questions that is not accusatory, but is trying to understand where they sit. And if it's in your open hand, that's the right thing to do. Because if you ask questions, maybe they haven't thought about it as well as you have. And so maybe by asking them those questions, then they come to a different realization. Oh, actually, I probably don't think that now I've thought it through. By asking questions, you also will get to understand their position better, and you might actually change your mind. Sometimes we can get it wrong. And by asking questions, then we can find out why people think what they do. And maybe we're coming from the same foundation, but they've got more information than us or are using different interpretation. And so it's right for us to discuss it. Now, if you work this out, then what happens is we end up understanding each other a lot better, arguing about silly things less, and getting united around what's important. And what that creates is an army. Instead of fighting this war on our own in all of our individual jobs and lives and marriages and families, we're suddenly fighting as one army for one purpose, those closed-handed issues. In Shakespeare's Henry V, Henry is giving his uh, army a pep talk before they go out to fight. And this is part of this speech. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers, for he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother. Be he ne'er so vile, this day shall gentle his condition. And gentlemen in England, now abed, shall think themselves accursed they were not here, and hold their manhoods cheap, whilst any speaks that fought with us upon St. Crispin's day. I'd like people to look at Christians and think, I don't feel like I'm living as good a lifestyle as these guys are because they're so united and they're moving forward together and they're just in such strong community with one another. So let's do it. Let me ask you another question. Where do you need to back away from conflict because you're not using an eternal mindset? Maybe there's a situation at work or at home where you've just got something going on at the moment and rather than engaging in conflict, which maybe you have been doing or you'll be thinking that you'll do it this week, maybe you need to approach by asking questions instead. During the Second World War, the Allied forces were fighting hard and then America announced that they were going to join the war. And Winston Churchill said, now I can rest easy. It's like sleeping with a 45 under my pillow. God save the queen. The Americans joined. Can you sense the relief in what he's saying there? We've been fighting hard for years. The Americans are coming. Wow. They've got more than us. They're a bigger army, better technology, better equipped. We're going to win. There's nothing for us to worry about now. And there is truth that in the, ba- the battle that we're fighting in this war, we're not alone. We have each other, but we have the Holy Spirit who empowers us and equips us. He is better than the enemy. He is better equipped. 
He's more powerful. He's bigger. And he'll be with us. So we should be able to say that. We can rest easy. We still need to fight, but we know that we are going to win. The Holy Spirit is with us. He's on our side, fighting for us and with us and through us. Pete mentioned Dunkirk earlier this morning. D-Day was the day where the Allied forces had combined all of our plans and strategies and came up with this strategy. And on this day, D-Day, this was the day we were going to take over Europe. We're going to go by sea, by land, by air. We're going to, this is the day. And D-Day happened, and it was successful. We got in, took over those enemy lines. The enemy was far weakened beyond anything that they'd been before. And on that day, the battle was won. There was still several, a large amount of time before the actual war was finished. But on that day, that was the day that the battle was won. We live in a time right now between D-Day and VE Day. At the cross 2,000 years ago, Jesus died in our place and he won the victory for us. The battle has already been won. The Bible says about maintain the unity of spirit. It doesn't say strive for it or start to initiate it. It says maintain it. It's already here. We've got it. The battle has already been won for us. We have the victory in Christ. We're not perfect yet. We're still in that gap in between D-Day and VE Day. But we will get there because the battle has been won. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 55 says, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death. Where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? When we're in a situation and we know that even death can't even beat us, we should have some swagger about us. We should know this battle has already been won. We have the Holy Spirit on our side. Jesus has already done what is necessary. We just need to walk in that victory. Winston Churchill said, Nothing in life is so exhilarating as to be shot at without result. Yet there are times where Satan will attack us or tempt to tempt us and influence us in bad ways. And when those times come and we're able to go, Jesus has won the victory, don't even bother me with that. That is a good experience. It's exciting. The bank could come up, that would be great. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 1 says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. We spent time in silence this morning thinking about those who have given their life for our freedom. Jesus gave his life for us, for our freedom. And he wants us to live in freedom. He doesn't want us to live our lives thinking of all of the things that we should be doing and haven't done and could do. It would be very easy to walk out this morning and think, Sam talked all about conflict and avoiding conflict and engaging in conflict and asking questions and doing all of this stuff. And it seems quite difficult. But it's not about us. It's all about him. He says, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore. Don't give in. Don't avoid conflict when you know there's something wrong and it's just a way that we ought to engage. 
Don't just start fighting because you think, oh, well, I've got an opinion and it's important. Everyone should listen. Think about what's important, but stand firm. Why don't we stand together and celebrate the victory that Jesus has won for us?